What's up, Dirtbags? Episode 115, Midwest Angler Podcast. Scott Sturman, Matt Deitch, the same as every other week for uh, 114 weeks prior. Except for the times I'm gone and you got to have bring in, you know, the... The B teams. Or the C. Yeah, the C. Yeah, that time when you had Stu the Noob, that was kind of like bringing in the freshman Yeah, it team. wasn't good. It, it wasn't was good. Like, but, I mean, hey, I mean, you... Throwing <laughs> some junior high kids out there versus the varsity team. Right. Yeah. I mean, it... Uh, you know, the, the show must go on. And, That's right. Uh, yeah. We're here. Is what it is. Episode so, 115, like you Episode said. 115. Uh, no, uh, aside from a potential state record uh, up in North Dakota for the new uh, uh, walleye record, I don't know, 16 and a half pounds. Yeah. Uh, that's potential. I, I have not seen that that's been confirmed. I'm sure that, uh, you know, some the DNR needs to take a look at it and uh, get things figured out on that. But uh, it, it looks like that could be happening. And, you know, that's a, that's a second 16-pound uh, fish. In, a, in the last couple of years. And there's a lot of people that I are... I think in, since October. Right. Oh, yeah, and, that's and, right. And I think Jason Mitchell caught one on that body of water that they figure would have been up there, and and he didn't right didn't pursue it. So I mean, a lot of people are predicting that it's going to get broke yet this year, again or again this yeah. spring. Well, I really think in the next few week, weeks that you know the potential of another sixteen plus pound walleye coming it. out of there could happen. So holy moly! Yeah, if you're looking at a trophy walleye fish and get up there to lake Oahe in north dakota yep yep and bring us along with you because yeah. uh we are experts and uh you know i mean we'll show you where to uh where to get them and uh you know you just uh you pay our way up there uh you know yeah well, we'll reel them in for you you net them we'll let you net them but we'll reel them in yeah well i mean you know we'll let you have one rod maybe <laughs> you know i mean you know but uh I mean, that's that's the price you pay to go fishing with a couple of experts. And that's uh, right. You know, so hopefully, one of you guys is willing to pay it. Preferably, <laughs> somebody with a really nice boat and a pile full of money. <laughs> so, well, uh, that's that. Uh, no, otherwise, uh, I don't think there's a whole lot of news. We're in that goofy in between right. spot right now, Matt. And yeah, uh, it's that transition time where you know a lot of the smaller rivers are starting to open up, yep. and some of the smaller bodies of water, but uh, a lot of the a lot of the main lakes still are holding ice, but it's bad enough where you can't get out on it to fish. And exactly down, like I said, what's going to happen? Right down here is that way. Um, we're getting some rain right now, so maybe that'll help it go pretty quickly. And if it gets to be a windy day, I mean, they're starting to get some pockets of open water out there, and that right. can, it can get it to go pretty pretty quickly. Yep, and I, I mean, we've got some, we've got more rainy, snowy yep. mix, you know, here for a while. Thank God. Did you see down in Colorado, <laughs> there's like a spot that they were predicting or did get like 91 inches? That's ridiculous. I could not imagine that much snow. Can you imagine walking out of your house? Like, you, I mean, you don't like, get to walk out of your right. house. Like, what do you, I mean, what do you do? You'd be pretty helpless feeling just sitting in watching it pile up and pile up. I guess before it ever happened, you'd want to go out there and get the shovel and bring it in the house, just right? So you could shovel your way out of the house. I mean, just to just to take a step out of your front door. I, I don't know. Wow, that is that is crazy. Uh, yeah, I apologize to them. I'm, I think I saw baseball size hail down in Texas. Wow. Yeah. No, thank you. Yep. They can keep it down there. And we're up here in Iowa, just kind of scooting along, you know, like no big deal. So, ah, well, whatever. Sorry about that. Um, yeah, is what it is. Uh, you know what? 
We're going to give away a shirt right now. Giving away a shirt right now. We're going to give away a shirt right now. We're uh, we're four minutes into this podcast, and uh, we got some new shirts here a while back. Uh, I won't guarantee that I've got every single size that every single person wants, but um, I've got I've got some. Everybody uh, likes a giveaway. Yep. And uh, yeah, if you guys, if if you're listening to this, I know some people have uh, have messaged me and said, you know, hey, do you do you got an extra shirt? I don't got I don't got much for sweatshirts, but I do got some t-shirts. Uh, message me and and I'll I'll get one uh, sent out to you. Otherwise, uh, hold on, I'm trying to f- come up with what our Gmail account is. Hold on, it is Midwest Angler One at gmail.com midwest angler one and that's the number one at gmail.com email that uh email that email and just say all all, all that it's got to say in the email is just the word dirt bags dirt and bags. then you're entered in and um i don't know maybe next show or sometime in between we'll we'll randomly pick one but dirt bags to midwest angler one at gmail.com you'll be entered yeah that's that. That's it. That's that. Free shirts. Yep. This week we've also got Bassmaster Elite Series on Pickwick. Yep. So uh, get your lineup set if you're I in the a, fantasy fishing deal. I got a feeling it could be a good tournament. You thinking so, huh? I think setting so. up good. I think that it's going to be a pretty competitive one, and I I think that you know you're going to see some nice fish caught. I mean, I'm not going to say like hopefully like some big giants like down in Florida, but I'm saying like the consistent, you know five pounders right yep yep so gonna take gonna take in the mid 20s every day and yeah to put you up there towards the top i feel hopefully yeah it should be a fun one yeah so all right well uh we got a cool show today uh scott mockentoon a buddy of ours from up in new prague minnesota um scott works for the minnesota dnr as a fisheries biologist Uh, as much as we don't want him to listen to this uh, scott's one of our good buddies and uh uh, you know, he, he's a very, very intelligent guy, knows a lot about fish. And we thought, golly, we got to have him on. Uh, that's the last nice compliments we're going to pay <laughs> towards him because after this, I mean, it's just shots after shots after shots, but, uh, um, no, we, we've been looking forward to getting Scott on and we finally got Definitely. him. So, uh, yeah, with that, we're going to go over to Scott. All right. And we're here with Scott Mockentoon. Uh, Scott, uh, if, if I was to call you a name, do you do you think the Big Apple biologist is all right? No, I don't think that works very well. <clears throat> no, I don't know. I, I haven't. I've had a few different nicknames through the years, and Scotty Mac, Scooter. That's. Uh, I haven't. That one doesn't fit too well. The B A B. If I move to if I move to New York, maybe. <laughs> I want to know. Uh, do you guys think that Scott is the most popular name in the? outdoor like in the fishing industry because there seems to be a lot of scots out there oh there's there are a lot of us out there for sure it is you know certainly when all of us head out to the black hills for craig oilers hooked on hard water there's uh scott olson scott merwin scott brower scott mockington and you know that's all the good scots i think right right (laughs) but you forgot to mention the scott that got first place well not first place but first place in all the scots this year in the uh in the pro tournament and that was uh that was yours truly the big scott (laughs) yeah what was what was that like one sixteenth of an ounce that separated all of us (laughs) (laughs) hey i mean does it count? 
<laughs> it counts, baby. It You're counts. Right. I don't want. I don't want to take that away from you. Thank you. I appreciate that. <laughs> well, uh, before, before you know, I, I really, truly, when I was thinking about setting this uh, interview up, I'm like, we cannot have this thing fly off the rails right off the bat. You know, we've we've got to actually get some information out of you. So uh, normally, we we start off any of the uh, episodes where we actually talk to an angler with a couple of random questions. Scott, I want to know what, what's your favorite kind of pie? Ooh, I got to say my grand, my wife's grandmother's blueberry pie with wild blueberries, which if you play your cards, right, you may get a piece of it. How Minnesota is that? Right. (laughs) Tame a black bear to get yourself (laughs) a piece of pie. Okay. One more. So, so say you're going to be eating a steak, perhaps maybe a big old ribeye of Cox beef. How you, how you cooking that steak? Oh, an aristocrat, medium rare. Misty, medium rare. Okay. okay. Is there any other way to eat it? Well, I mean, it depends on if you want to get slapped or not. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. All right, Scott. Uh, you know, obviously, uh, fishing's a big part of your life and, uh, like it, like you know, almost everyone else in the state of Minnesota, you know, fishing was probably a big part of your life very early on. Uh, how did you first get into fishing, and and what are some of the earliest uh, fishing memories that you have? Well, I was a farm kid. I grew up uh, just west of Minneapolis, St. Paul, about sixty miles on a farm. We had dairy cattle, farrow to finish hogs, so we'd grow them and raise them up to market size. Uh, we had a pretty diversified farm. We had corn, soybeans, uh, sweet corn, peas from the local vegetable plant. We had growing contracts with them. We had wheat and oats. We had a little bit of everything. And uh, our, our far- the farm was incorporated between my dad, my uncle, and my grandfather. And so, you know, there was a lot of time outdoors doing different chores, helping out. Um, you know, you, you get a pretty good understanding of life and death and nature in the natural world on a farm. And I was probably, so like a lot of farm kids, um, I was in 4-H, I was also in FFA and, uh, you know, participated in the natural sciences. So if you look at all the different, if you ever go to a county fair and you look at the 4-H program, they're going to have the natural sciences, they're going to have shooting sports, fishing sports, exploring the environment, wildlife biology, uh, geology, then uh, forestry. They're going to have a whole bunch of these different project areas that you can kind of learn within. And I was kind of a fishing fool as a little kid. Couldn't wait to go. We couldn't get away from the farm very often, but, you know, I could pedal my bike a couple miles down to Lake Marion. I could go with my grandparents that lived a mile down the road once they were semi-retired off the farm they had a little trailer uh, on the horseshoe or sock chain up by cold spring richmond area kind of famous in minnesota now is a well it's a little bit of everything a multi-species fishery that the sock river runs through and um, i try to visit it pretty regularly for channel catfish through the ice but they had a little trailer up there um, fished as much as i could and um Pretty quickly, uh, one of my 4-H projects when I was nine years old and in the second grade was to go to the go, go to the local fisheries office and interview someone. 
uh, and learn about their job. And up to that point, I wanted to be a dairy farmer. But when I sat down and did this interview, I was like, holy cow, this sounds like an awesome job. I want to do this someday. And I, I sort of set my goals to it. The person that I interviewed at the Hutchinson office was Chris Kavanaugh, who just retired, oh, just a couple weeks ago. And, you know, all these years later, um, I'm actually, when we're not in a national pandemic, I'm actually in that office working as the area supervisor in the same role that Chris had. So that's, in a nutshell, how I kind of got to where I where I am today. Very cool. cool. I, I mean, pretty full <laughs> circle right there. Yeah, yeah. You know, hey, you know, I, I think a lot of people think, you know, yeah, you know, I don't know, like when I was a little kid, I think I wanted to be a police officer. And uh, I remember, you know, uh, one kid at church was always telling me that he was going to be a uh, uh, fire off or fire fighter fire holy moly firefighter down in sioux city you know but uh i don't know you know i mean how often does a kid actually end up doing what they set out to do especially in the same city that you set out to do in the uh, same job that you interviewed right yeah that's pretty cool now how, how did you get to that spot you know obviously there, there's schooling that's involved in that uh where where was that at yeah so um <clears throat> You know, I you had to, you wanted to build up a pretty good resume, and I mentioned being in agricultural, extracurricular activities. I was in sports. I was in you know, all kinds of different things. Uh, tried to put as much on a on a college application as I could, and certainly had to pull good grades. Uh, I looked at a lot of different schools in the mainly surrounding states where we had reciprocity, and ultimately, I just decided to go to the University of Minnesota. Uh, they had a fisheries program that was pretty highly ranked at the time. And uh, I stayed there for four years. And at the end of my four years, there was, I started looking at graduate school programs, um, kind of the same song and dance at the University of Minnesota. Uh, I was blessed to spend four years working in a fisheries genetics lab with uh, Dr. Lauren Miller, who's now spending uh, some of his time with the University of Minnesota and some of his time with Minnesota DNR. Um, I tried to do some undergraduate research projects and, you know, tried to build up a decent uh, kind of resume and curriculum vitae, a, a list of your life's experiences for short, uh, and, you know, apply to, to grad school, take the graduate record examination and move on. And uh, after looking at some offers in Illinois and Arkansas, um, I, I saw this really attractive thing that was really geared for me. It was a, it was a deal that uh, one of the fisheries research people in DNR, Jack Wingate, he's gone now, but he was looking to recruit through the university pipeline and build some connections there. And they had this program where you could get placed into the DNR if you you know, went through your graduate school program successfully, and it gave you a chance to work in a couple field offices in the summer. So it was almost like a glorified work study. Um, I spent time at central office for DNR working there. I worked at the Lake Superior station, and I worked at the Walker station. And uh, once I was finished with graduate school, then uh, I was able to sort of uh, go into an opening, uh, and that, that opening was at Waterville. I started there in 2008, came on as a as a fishery specialist, uh, kind of our entry-level biologist position in the state of Minnesota. Worked there for 
six years, um, continued to work there for two more years, but actually worked as a, um, well, actually back up a second. Um, after three years I had promoted to the assistant supervisor, um, then hung on for three more years. And at year six, then there was a, an opportunity to do a regional habitat position that I, I worked on for a couple of years. Uh, somewhat as a surprise to me, the Hutchinson station where I am now, uh, that supervisor retired what I would call on the early side. Um, it was good for him. He was good at managing his money. I've known him for some time and have stayed in contact with him here after his retirement. But uh yeah, was able to interview for that job. And uh, sometimes you just got to be in the right place at the right time. I, I, I won't, uh, I won't deny that the, the graduate program that I referred to earlier, I think it ran for two or three years before it was shuttered. I mean, it wasn't really a sustainable practice for the agency to continue piping in new people as, as the agency constricted. So it, uh, or contracted, I should say, you know, shrunk the number of fisheries employees they had. So um, you know, again, I'll, I'll be the first to admit I've, I've been really fortunate that way. And, um, you know, maybe I put in for positions that, uh, there, there haven't been as many folks that have been interested in them, but you know, you just got to put your best foot forward and do the best that you can. And you know, I'd like to think that we're working on enough different things that are unique at, at our office, um, that I've brought up, a, learned a lot of different skills that I've tried to, um, work on different things and, you know, represent the agency in a good way. So it's been, it's been good. I've had good feedback and certainly it's been uh, fun to interact with, uh, you know, our, our public as well as some of the media folks. And, you know, certainly that's a kind of a side gig for me too. Absolutely. Now, when, when you were a senior in high school and you had decided, okay, fish fisheries biologist or a fishery biologist is what you, you know, wanted to pursue. Now looking back, is there more to the job than what you thought when you were a senior in high school or is it about what you what you expected man so <laughs> i'm kind of known for having this terrible memory but you know i think i think i kind of knew what i was getting into in terms of this is some of the work you're going to do but i don't think you ever get your head completely around the issues that you deal with either the depth or the breadth of the issues or how the social side of what you're doing plays into it. I think they try to prepare students for that. Right. You know, undergraduate or graduate programs, they try to, they try to prepare students that, you know, these, these are going to be, these are going to be, some of these issues are going to be controversial. Some of these issues are going to be very complex. Some of these are going to be more socially divide, uh, decided than biologically decided. And so those are the things you have to sort of learn over time. And, you know, it's kind of controlling what you can control and not being upset by the things that you can't. Right. I'm sure about that. No, I mean, with your job right now, what are some of the things that you do on a daily basis, non-pandemic, but, you know, I mean, what's a, what's a average day look like for Scott Mockentoon? So, you know, a lot of folks ask that of any, anyone that works in natural resource management. And the, the truth is that there is no average day. And that's why a lot of us take this job, right? I mean, there's a very seasonal nature, certainly for the fisheries folks. Um, you know, we're talking in the end of winter next week, the official, um, you know, official first day of spring hits and our lakes are opening up. We're going to have crews that are going out as soon as our lakes are open. 
doing winter kill checks, doing northern pike ice out checks, uh, doing some early sampling, uh, you know, stretch that through the, re- the remainder of spring. They may be doing some bass uh, electrofishing. They may be doing some uh, walleye population estimates. They be, may be doing all sorts of different things. I know we've got some special panfish sampling when the water temperatures warm up a bit. Um, our, summer, our summer survey is kind of the the big operation in Minnesota. Uh, certainly anybody that's listening to this podcast has probably gone, if you're a Minnesota angler, resident or non-resident, you've gone on to mndnr.gov and looked at Lake Finder. Uh, you can type in the name of any, uh, any of Minnesota's 87 counties and pull up the survey history, pull up uh, write-ups on all the information that we collect read all that it's really a transparent and neat way to present a lot of historical data that we've collected that's kind of our backbone of what we've worked on for 50 60 years and that'll continue moving forward and that's mainly in the summer months and then you get into the fall it's uh some more special sampling some rearing pond work uh kind of closing things down maybe with land management and then moving into the off season and the off season winter season is kind of a report writing, meeting with committees, reviewing the work that you've done, reviewing safety plans, training, um, conferences, just, just a, a whole lot of things that you've kind of delayed while you were out in the field collecting information. Right. Now, like coming up here, you said, it, you know, with the busy time with the ice out and doing all the sampling, do you guys put in some pretty long days on those when you're doing that stuff? You can. I mean, as I think about my time, um, the, the longest day I've ever had was like a 16 hour day. And, uh, you know, that was, that was with, with some, you know, breaks in the, of course, right. in the middle of it, but it's, you know, starting early, maybe running fish all the way to Northern Minnesota and back, or, you know, jumping out in a boat and doing something that, you know, you're tied into and then taking a break and later going out for electrofishing. Or we had a, a lake rehabilitation project where we use, where we applied a piscicide. That was that was one of those really long days too. But yeah, those are sometimes you get those long days, but we also try to sprinkle in some seasonal help. We do get laborers that, that are seasonal that come back. We do try to bring on interns from college programs in the summer to supplement labor. And it's a mutually beneficial deal. They they're learning about what we do about our culture, about how to do the job and, you know, firsthand coaching and, and, uh, you know, just that mentoring aspect and vice versa. We're getting help with, you know, pulling, pulling fish up, um, working up fish, taking lengths, weights, scales, all the, all the typical kind of things that we, that we do. So. What's the, what's the one thing every year that you look forward to? You know, you kind of talk about some of the stuff that you do right after ice out. You talk about some of the stuff that you do, you know, at the end of the summer, beginning of fall. You know, is there one thing that every single year, like, you just can't even wait till it gets to be June 1st because that's when we start doing this? Is there something like that? Um, that's a good question. Certainly I like the field season more than the non-field season. Uh, I've been, I've been with the agency now for 13 years and, uh, I kind of sit here and go, you know, I don't want to get to the point where, you know, you start just taking it all for granted. Right. Um, I'll never forget one of the quotes from Tim Brastrup who retired about 10, 12 years ago. He, he said, he wrote something in his, in his retirement, uh, and an, email or release that he put out about how 
every time he lifted a trap nut, he was still excited to see what was inside. And that's kind of how I am. I mean, every time you go out and, and do some field work, you still want to see what you're going to get. I think the biggest thing that would lay it out for me was, um, I was, it was 2006, the first, um, fisheries field office internship up in Walker. And we went out to mule and blackwater, like the very first week I was interning up there. This was like, you know, right around Memorial day weekend or first part of June and mule and blackwater are pretty nice bass fisheries. So they're taking me out on this boat on the front of the deck for the first time that I have ever, uh, boom electrofished. And at the end of the night, you're going, they pay you to do this. (laughs) You're sitting there with about a 10 foot long fiberglass dip handled net. And it's, I mean, it's like playing lacrosse, right? These fish are getting hit in the electrical field. They're temporarily stunned. You're dipping them, bring them aboard. And it's a way to sample fish very effectively. It's, it's a tool like anything else. I mean, all this stuff is fun for, for a couple of days. I mean, two years ago we did a walleye population estimate and the first couple of days, you know, there's smiles on faces and we're seeing all these great big walleyes. And after two and a half weeks straight, it's all right. The weather stinks again and you know, it's rainy and cold and I've got, you know, I've got a broken off walleye dorsal spine in my thumb underneath my fingernail. And it's, you know, you're kind of sick and tired of some of the work that that comes with it. But I mean, anything becomes a job if you do it, long enough there's stuff you're not going to like but at the end of the day it's it still is things still are things that you enjoy and i'd even say this i think there's a lot of folks that are like me that love angling and that's what brought them to this career path and for some of those folks there's always the worry of the burnout like you're handling those fish all the time you you know the example i gave with the walleye population estimate like i needed a two-week break which i got i I didn't want to see a walleye again for a little (laughs) while and then and then I took some time off and then Minnesota's fishing opener came and I was ready to, ready to screw around with them again. But it is, it is one of those things where it doesn't, it's, I don't get sick of it. It doesn't make me not want to jump in a boat and go fishing. It just sort of adds to it. It dovetails so well with my interest in angling. Nice. Now, Scott, you were talking about that shocker boat there and, and that's something that I guess I have a lot of interest in because I've never seen it be done. I've never taken uh, part in that. Uh, so, so what exactly is that process? Like, is that something that you do in the evenings or you can do it just in the middle of the day? How does that, how does that work? Well, you can do it anytime. Um, but the thing to know is you're generating with an electrical generator. Um, you're generating an electrical field. You fire up the gas powered generator and you are sending electricity uh, through an at, through a set of anodes, and then the boat hull is acting as our cathode. So we're we're creating this electrical field. You can actually map it out. Um, I guess to try to put it in perspective, it's probably the field is probably seven or eight feet long. Uh, excuse me, wide seven or eight feet wide, and it's probably. Mm, I don't know, seven or it's probably pretty square, actually seven, seven or eight feet wide and seven or eight feet long. So it's not that big of an area, but as your boat's moving, you know, you're, you're moving along and you're encountering fish. So it's not like, you know, it's an active technique rather than passive. So you're, you're running along, 
and and it only works oh i should mention this too it only works to a depth of like say six or seven foot so again the idea of the, the vault if you think about that as a cube or or something similar it's not that big of a of an area but you're that and it's worth noting then that that limitation on depth of you know six or seven feet once you move offshore you know if you're out in the middle of the lake you're not hitting anything so it's a shoreline oriented sampling method so you ask the question about day or night you can use it either time um, but water temperatures matter and then we typically use it at night for certain species when they're going to be most vulnerable for instance um, we're doing our bass in the spring and we're doing them at night because then they'll be up shallow you know pre-spawn and we're doing our walleye fingerlings in the fall when the water temperatures cool off and again those those fingerlings are going to come up close to shore typically as the water's cooling off so we just we just know that that's an effective way to sample them from you know other folks that have used the gear across the nation and you know fisheries research being what it has been and now it's a standardized accepted gear and accepted way of doing business but you can use it anytime so you're generating this field um you're going to test conductivity before you get started uh you don't want to be running too much electricity through the fish because you can uh you can do damage to them basically if you think about it this way there are ion pathways in your central nervous system that send messages kind of to your muscles to do things and we're interfering with that ion pathway basically um, we are causing those fish to uncontrollably move those muscles so they're actually swimming towards our anodes and if we're setting it at the right level, there's about 60 pulses, electrical pulses per second. Um, well, that's usually our default setting. And then we are measuring conductivity, plugging it into a formula, trying to figure out um, what percent of range for our full kind of uh, our full capabilities of our unit, what we're going to send out. We can we can kind of turn that down a little bit in our readout that we'll actually read is what the amperage is. We don't want to, you know, put too much amperage through. That tends to, you go from electrotaxis when the fish are uncontrollably swimming to electronarcosis, which is actually killing the fish. So you have to be, you have to be, you're, you're a caretaker. You're working for the interests of anglers and conservation for the whole state. So you need to be responsible and caretake these fish. So you're, you're trying to set it low and, and move it up from there. You don't want to immediately go to level 10 and friday night fish fry you got <laughs> so you, you back it off a little bit but you do you do hit the fish they they swim up um someone dips them out of the water puts them into a holding tank where we're recirculating water um they recover pretty quickly but you do see some gnarly things when you do it i mean they're if smallmouth bass tend to go through quite a bit of color changes um i've seen it even in some walleyes it's remarkable you look at them freshly dipped um they have the same vibrant colors and they kind of go a little bit pale um they'll recover a little bit but it it, it hits fish differently i've also seen um <laughs> i've seen <laughs> seagulls you know in the daytime runs follow behind us and try to pick up oh, yeah. fish that are you know that were that were not dipping and that's worth noting too it's you know some you know i mentioned earlier you may just be targeting bass and any other species any other bycatch that you're getting you're not going to dip um, so you'll leave some fish behind, but those fish will recover. So that's kind of, I think in a nutshell, uh, enough about electrofishing. Do you like, 
is there like you mentioned bass and walleye are those the ones that you mainly do the electro electro fishing with or do you kind of do it for a lot of the different species we we really have used it for a little bit of everything i mean i can remember going into a musky rearing pond because we had a very high valuation of every single musky that we produced that it was worth our time to drive around with the electro fishing boat on until we hit one and then focus on our effort on ch- chasing that one around the pond till we finally dipped it up and in. So we've used it for muskies, uh, used it a little bit for panfish for special assessments on panfish. I mentioned bass and walleye. Um, boy, it's it's really been oh, and it's used as a measure on on our river systems um, and on our lakes as well for index of biotic integrity. Basically, Minnesota passed. A constitutional legacy amendment 13 years ago where we value clean water and we're taxing ourselves at a little higher rate uh, to ensure clean water one of the ways that we are looking at uh, looking at the health and cleanliness of our water is what are the fish species that it supports because there are some species that are very tolerant of pollution and some that are intolerant of pollution so you can go in and uh, look at lakes and rivers that way. Um, one of my colleagues at the Hutchinson office is a biologist dedicated to the Minnesota River. And every year that's one of his core duties in the month of August is basically run the entire length of the river, doing index of biotic integrity and trying to get a count of all the species. And we do see, you know, numbers, species richness and species diversity increasing. So kind of nice, nice to use that tool that way. Yeah. What if, so say Scott and I were along with you and I accidentally, you know, accidentally kicked him off the boat and he fell in the water. Would he piss himself? <laughs> Boy, that's a good question. I'm not sure that'd be his first reflex, but we do have a couple <laughs> dead men switches. Um, everybody that runs our equipment, you have to have training and you have to have CPR. Um, I, I've, I'm just, I'm just asking hypothetically, you know, just in case yep. I accidentally knocked Scott off the boat. No, oh, it, it, you know, I'm a farm kid. I touched an electric fence and <laughs> folk, folks that have told me that have been hit, you know, I, if you've got a hole in your waders and you're using a backpack unit or, you know, I can't imagine being in touch with a boom shocker unit, but, um, it's got the power to, to stop your heart. It's got a power to hurt you pretty good. I mean, it just sort of depends how far into the field you are, et cetera. But, uh, yeah, it's he'd probably be flailing around. I mean, I've seen muskrats encounter the field, beavers encounter the field. We try to let off as soon as we see them, but we'll I'll say we'll roll them, right? If they if they cuz you're here's the thing, if you're out at night, you're going to run into mammals are active at night too, oh, yeah. right? Otters, muskrats, beavers. They're going to hit the field and they're going to they'll do the same thing. They're going to roll up. You're messing with their ion pathway and they're you know, they're just like you know, I'll tweak it out, I guess I'll call it. <laughs> so, um, you, and the reason is it's not, it's not a purposeful thing. Like your head is down, you're watching where the lights are lighting up in front of you. You got these heavy duty spotlights and led lights in front of you. And it's dark on the exterior of that. So, you, you know, you can see like docks and boats and stuff ahead of you. You're not going to run into something, but at the same time, like, you're you may not see a bee i mean if i see, if we see a beaver head that's poking up in the water like yeah we're gonna just take a break and lay off the juice but if all of a sudden it swims to us you know to try to swim under the boat or whatever the heck it was going to do it may just encounter that field so 
you got to be careful. Yeah, that it's going to deter Scott from going out at night skinny dipping off of his yeah. parents' dock just in case. It... <laughs> <laughs> no, I guess my my biggest thing, my biggest takeaway so far on this is like I figured you just drove into a real fishy area and said, "All right, guys, three, two, one, and boom, you know, and you know, you just waited for this, you know, waited for the fish to come up. I didn't figure that, you know, you, you kept a you know, a constant current and just cruising around and whatever got in front of you. I don't know that not, not the way that I figured in my mind. Yeah, no, that's, it's interesting to hear you say that. Cause yeah, we have to, we have to randomize our paths that we run on the lake, right? We can't just go cherry pick to the best looking walleye or bass habitat or whatever. We kind of have to have a representative sample of what's on the lake and that may include some of the good habitat and that may include some of the bad habitat and it all sort of depends what the goals of your sampling are exactly so it is uh it is interesting we do i have heard stories of you know you run into people that run out on a metal dock and then you shut everything down and you talk to them and tell them what you're doing they, they used to think that you know if they if they only see you out there every couple of years or you know, every so often, you know, a lot of, and I think it's changed now that bow fishing has become more popular where they see a boat out at night with lots of lights on, but, and a generator running. But, uh, back in the day, I mean, I'm sure you attracted a lot of attention and people would run out and is that a UFO landing on the lake? What's going on? So, uh, or if you, and if, and if you saw a dog, you know, you dog running out, swimming in the water at you, you know, you don't want to shock shock a dog but like like i said you kind of know where that electrical field is yeah it only happens once (laughs) (laughs) no no uh god dang it what the heck oh what you know you talked about beavers you talked about muskrats what you know what's the wildest thing i mean have you ever had a fish that it's like holy smokes like you know they're not native to minnesota they're not supposed to be here you know have you know have you ever had anything real crazy like that well, um, I haven't come into anything that's not native, um, but you still do see native fish that are very rare. I remember helping out with some electrofishing at Granite Falls, and I have yet in my career to handle an American eel. I'd like to catch one on the hook and line, and I've gone out and tried to get them, although it's kind of a needle in a haystack thing. Uh, and I did see one for half a second, uh, <laughs> when we were up at Granite Falls, but they're real, you know, you can miss fish. That's part of, that's part of the equation is you're counting on not being able to dip everything. And that fish just managed to squirt out of the field very quickly. Some fish do, some are better at escaping than others. And the American eel is one that is very challenging. Uh, we did see that one. We, we dip a lot of blue suckers. Those are always cool to see just cause they're a, a species of special concern. Um, I remember electro fishing on a lake that had a history of flathead catfish stocking. And I had been in touch with the lake association. Uh, some of the members had been catching fish in the lake, which to me suggested there has been natural reproduction ongoing but we don't have sampling gears that effectively sample channel catfish based on the kind of type of lake that it is and how deep it gets. Uh, it just so happened that we made a run out on this lake for, for walleyes one night and there was a flathead up shallow uh, feeding and it just was in the wrong place at the wrong time where it was vulnerable to our gear. So we did, 
we did shock up like a 30 pound flathead in this lake that, you know, I know there's a, re- a remnant population, a resident population, a self reproducing population, but you just don't get to see them all that often. So that was pretty cool. Nice. Ever uh, see any potential state record fish? You know, during my internship up at Walker, um, there was a smallmouth bass caught in a gill net at Little Boy Lake that was flirting with the state record. Um, we've had we've had some close calls. I think anglers, you know, anglers have to cert in Minnesota anyways. Anglers have to certify their fish as state records with um, they have to have an, a a weight from an official scale, you know, the department of commerce weights and measures will certify the scales every year. And they have, not only do they have to get it uh, weighed on a certified scale, they need to bring it in for two biologists to do the identification on. So we've had folks bring us some really big fish in. I think I saw a rock bass and a greater red horse, but, um, unfortunately both those, both those folks that brought those fish in were, you know, either pounds or ounces shy of the record still a very nice fish but you know not quite enough to to get the record now scott you age fish correct you can age a fish that's correct what, what how, how does that process work every species has a little different preferred structure that gets used um there's quite a bit of research and uh, time that folks have put into into unlocking the best ways to do it. And for every species, it's a little bit different. But basically, the overview is this: we, you know, all the all the folks here in the Midwest are in a, a temperate part of the world where fish have a, a definitive growing season and non-growing season because again, they're they're cold-blooded. They're only going to grow during the warm summer seasons. Uh, and kind of the shoulder seasons that surround the summer. And then at some point, uh, the water's cool enough that they're really not going to grow. They're just going to run the metabolism. And you see that distinction when they're laying down daily growth rings. You see that on scales. You see that on any hard part structure. So it could be taking apart the vertebrae and looking at that, sectioning those. It could be uh, taking uh a fin ray section it could be taking a spine section it could be taking a set of bones out of the skull that are called otoliths Um, otoliths are are used quite a bit just because they tend to be a little more reliable than scales and scales uh you know if you ever knock scales off the side of a fish drag it across the carpet before you release it or something and you lose some scales well those fish will actually regenerate those scales they'll grow them back but the regenerated scales aren't going to have all the annuli that the uh, scales that the fish has had its entire life would have so you know we tend to use the inner you know if, if we're if we're not if we're not gonna if we are gonna kill the fish anyways then we want to take you know otoliths we might want to take a, a spine whatever we can if we're going to release the fish you can still sometimes remove clip a spine off uh disarticulate catfish pectoral spine or dorsal spine you can take a scale but Basically, yeah, you take these hard part structures, you section them, you look at them through either a microscope or a microfiche reader. Um, there's some other, you know, finer methodology to it with either immersion oils, cracking and burning, um, taking, taking sec, you know, taking the photos at very high magnification and sharing them with other expert readers and trying to see if you can agree on an age, share it with others, send it to a lab uh, for 
otolith microchemistry for you know review and age validation i mean you can it really depends just how deep into it you want to go now like i'm thinking about this like a rings on a tree you know i mean are, are you when when you come up with an age are you fairly confident that like you can get it you know very close or, or are you looking at it and it's like eh, that one's probably 10 to 15 years old or you know something like that or, or do you know like no that's 13 like I'm, I'm counting them right here 13 it's a little bit of both that's okay. a great question scott but it is a little bit of both you, you you sum it up well and that's the analogy we use it is like dendrochronology where you're reading rings on a tree um we're, we're looking at the rings the same way it's partly a science and partly on art and like I was saying earlier, there's different methods for different species. And with some, especially when they're young, you're very confident. And then with others that are very old and rings, annuli, I should say, start cutting into each other because there's less definition or maybe the growing season wasn't really long or something happened in the life history, it becomes much more challenging. And that's where you do want to seek uh, help from others that have been doing it for a long time. But there's no substitute for experience with, with reading fish age. Now, do you like, so, so think about a walleye for say, um, I mean, do you like it? Uh, is there a model that, that you're thinking like at eight years old, I like to see that fish at 22 inches or does it matter all on, you know, what body of water it's in, you know, the, the food that it's got, or, or is it pretty basic? Like, you know, I, I, I was reading earlier today and they said that walleye that they recorded one time, a 29 year old walleye. I mean, is that, that seems, you know, obviously that's pretty near as old as me, but I mean, do you like to see, you know, all walleye get to about 20 years old? Is that something, you know, in your, in your studies that, that you believe should be, or, or, I mean, do do you get what I'm kind of saying here? A little bit, Scott. I think some of your questions are really rooted at the, the, they kind of get at the importance of aging. Like it doesn't, it's not glamorous. It is not glamorous. Like sitting in the winter time as our biologists and technicians do in the state and reading ages, it's not very glorious, but it is important to what we do. Um, knowing what the growth rates are on fish, knowing what length that age is, doing back calculations, you know, figuring out what that growth is. All, all that information is pretty darn important. And then when we look at a fishery as a whole, you know, this is the quantitative side of, of the job of, okay, you're going to estimate um, if you do a population estimate, which we don't do a lot because it's a lot of work, but you know what your composition of sizes and ages are, what the what the breakdown is. So it is very important to know. Um, and you, you know, to your question about the walleyes, I mean, it's going to depend uh, what what the sex of the fish is because males and females grow at different rates. Um, how productive the system is and what kind of forage they have, where they're at, um, productivity of the lake itself, and how long the growing season is. Um, all of that sort of factors in and we do see huge differences in minnesota from southwest northeast as you can imagine both growing season productivity all that factors into it so i partially answered some of that question um i think you were looking for like is there a particular length at age or growth that i like to see well i mean you know i I don't know take take the main body of water that you work with uh that that's a walleye fishery I mean, in, in your, in your area right there, what, what lake would that be? 
Um, oh, we were looking at Collinwood, um, one of our big walleye fisheries here recently. I'd, I'd, okay, I so, don't have the right, but I mean, you know, say say you know an eater walleye at seventeen and a half inches. I mean, what what would probably be the average age of that fish? I'm gonna guess probably four. It's either four or five. We have unbelievable growth in that lake, wow. um, but we're also we're also looking at trying to decipher how we want to set up our 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 structure reading and 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 growth um, because we, we're going into Collinwood um, every couple of years, and we know this. We know that our fish start to our walleye start to recruit to the gear at age two, which is amazing you know that's really fast growth but it's not the whole cohort that recruits to the gear so the ones that do recruit to the gear we're having questions internally are we biasing our sample because we're only getting the ones that are recruiting to the gear and they're blowing up what our growth is you know how you know those outliers could be influencing the the growth of other two-year-olds or how we're perceiving other two-year-olds or the whole entirety of the catch so that's a little inside baseball on on how we're using age and growth, but uh, yeah, I, I would say if you're asking me a 17 inch walleye on Collinwood, it's probably four, but four or five, four or five. I shouldn't say definitively four. It's it's probably some are four and some are the faster ones are four, but probably five. Yep. Okay. Um, you said recruit to gear. Is that what you said? That is what I said. Yep. What does that mean? All right, thank you for asking because I, sh- I skipped over that. So you we explain have... it because I don't want to. I, Scott doesn't understand me very well when I explain that stuff. So <laughs> you better explain it to him. Is that, there's a lot is of different reproducing or what? Uh, no. So there's a lot of different ways we can use the term recruitment, and it can it can be confusing for some. I mean, you can go out to Google and look it up, and uh, you get a lot of different answers. But, you know, when I say recruit to the gear, I specifically mean our fish are large enough to be captured effectively by the gill nets that we use. So Minnesota DNR uses gill nets that are 250 feet long with five different panels, three-quarters of an inch. This is mesh size now, so three-quarters of an inch holes uh, or mesh size, one inch, one and a quarter, one and a half, and two inch. And uh, we've been using a standardized gill net like that since the late 1950s. It gives us a good way. You know, the gill nets are set in the same locations and typically within the same week of the year. So we've got really good repeatability. It's almost like running an experiment. How many fish are you going to catch? We like to think that that is a good measure of relative abundance of how many walleyes are out uh, around the lake. You know, we don't have an exact count of how many are in the lake, but relative to uh, you know, the whole fish community and relative to year to year, we have an idea of abundance. So uh, when those fish are about, oh, Charles Anderson would be the expert on ear net selectivity and he just retired, but 10 to 12 inches, uh, we'll start seeing uh, maybe even lower, less than that. Maybe you get some eight inches uh, that are going to show up in your gill net, but you know you really want them a little bit bigger than that uh to really know effectively that you're going to capture say 90 percent of them that they're not just going to bounce off the net and or swim right through the holes uh, that that catch that catchability in the size of those fish the gill net selectivity is is pretty darn important and it impacts how many fish you catch so 
Does that make a little more sense about why some of those fast-growing two-year-olds are going to show up in the net, but the ones that aren't quite as big and don't grow as fast aren't? Right. And so that that really is kind of like an insider term, like, you know, the the biologists use that term. Somebody that's not in the Minnesota DNR is not going to use recruit to the gear. Right, yeah. It's kind of like a cowboy term down in Mullen, Nebraska, you know, like, I mean, you know. (laughs) Mooney zone. (laughs) Exactly. Kind of like I mean, pig and strings. Yeah, pig and strings. So latigos, <laughs> all sorts of stuff like that. You know. Okay. You know. Okay, that makes more sense now. <laughs> no, Scott. Uh, you know, obviously, uh, we could probably sit here and go on and on and on and on and on about this forever. But uh, sometime, you know, in the future, I don't know when. But uh, we, we, me and Matt, were talking about it. We would like to do a, a, a show with you where maybe we actually have listeners send in. Um, you know, send in uh, uh, questions, you know, ask a biologist or, or something like that. And obviously we're not going to let people send in stupid questions, you know, to, uh, you know, why, why don't you do this on my lake, you know, whatever, blah, blah, blah. But I mean, I, I think that there's a lot of questions here, you know, and, and stuff, you know, that even people in Iowa, you know, you know, you're, you're a fisheries biologist, you kind of, you you got a pretty good understanding no matter where these fish are but i don't know if that's something that you'd be interested in we we would certainly like to do that sometime yeah no without a doubt and there's no bad questions even you know if people are frustrated with some of their fish management i think uh you know asking the question of why is it done that way helps them understand uh, a little bit more you know i have no problem I know I'm going to talk to people that aren't going to necessarily be happy or agree with the decisions that we make, but I just ask that the same as I'll listen to them and try to understand where they're coming from. I ask that they do the same and yep. I share with them what, uh, what I know on the inside of it. So you bet. Right. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, we've gotten to uh, a point in the show where we're going to discuss a couple lake names. The old lake names. <laughs> now, it seemed to go pretty good last week. Scott got them pretty good this week. These come from you, but I'm not letting him look forward at the list. He only gets to see them one at a time. One at a time. But yep. So you, you've got to spell them out for the listeners, so they've, they've got to be able to guess them. I'll let you spell them out because you've got to read it. It'll okay. help you process okay. and maybe, like, enunciate. Okay, so number one would be L-A-C space C-O-U-R-T space O-R-E-I-L-L-E-S. So... We're going to go Lat Court Orioles. Lat Court Orioles. All right. So I, I submitted these. These are Wisconsin Lake names. Lacoudere. Lacoudere? <laughs> really? Lacoudere. Wow. Yes. You're making that, that up. Lacoudere. <laughs> God dang it. I kind of want to move to Lacoudere. That that's about kind of sounds fun. like something we used to chase back in college. Okay. <laughs> you can laugh, Scott. <laughs> All right. Number two. K I N N I C K I N N I C River. Kinnick Kinnick River. Kinnick Kinnick. I think we'll Kinnick. I think we'll give them that one. I mean, I'm from Iowa. Well, I was you know, Niall, say, Kinnick, I, I mean, when I first saw Kinnick, I was like, oh, he'll get this one. Yeah. The Kinnick Kinnick. Yeah, that's fun. I like that. (laughs) Really? Really? Okay. So number three. 
God, you, <laughs> you are just such a freaking <laughs> jack wagon. <laughs> so apparently it's not it's 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 Brian Bro's last name, and apparently I've been pronouncing it wrong the whole entire time, and I got to hear about how I pronounce everything wrong on Hooked on Hardwater. But I'm gonna say it's Brosdale. And you know, and I know you call it Brosdale. I I think it's Brosdale. Brian Brosdale, Brosdale Lake. You, you will, I'm glad. See, I want you to keep saying it the wrong way because we like that. We like <laughs> we like the things that you do that make you authentic. That's Brosdale. <laughs> That's what it is. All right, number four. C H E Q U A M E G O N Bay. Chicomagon Bay. Chicomagon. Shawamagan. Shawamagan. Who, who decided that this is the, how this is going to be spelled? The person that didn't want to pronounce it. They're right. just like, we're just going to call it this. Yeah. Yep, a lot of a lot of Chippewa names in Minnesota and in Wisconsin, and this is one. So this is a fun fun fishery. I mean, these are all worth checking out. The Kinnikinick's got some nice trout. Uh, Lacoudere is known for its muskies. Shawamigan Bay uh, up by Ashland Bayfield. Beautiful fishing, you know, on Lake Superior. That's that's Chippewa? Yes. Now, whoever decided that we were going to spell this in English, they are the real screw-up. Like, I mean, they, <laughs> they, you know, I mean, Ch- <laughs> you know, Chippewa, yeah, they, they speak the language that they speak, whatever. But whoever the, the English person was that decided, <laughs> this is how I'm going to spell it, man. They failed. They failed. All right. Last but not least, number five. Golly, with this, with the start of this one, I feel like this is a setup. No, this I feel is not like a this setup. is a setup. All right, B U T T E space D E S space M O R T S. Budemorts. Budemore. Budemore. Yep, Budemore Lake in southern Wisconsin. You know, I wasn't that, that was far right. off on some of these. No, you're always right around the ballpark on them. Yeah, I'm. I'm good. I'm a well-traveled <laughs> individual, you know. All right, I didn't. I didn't fail, and it's Brian Brosdale. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, uh, Scott, I don't know. Um, that's about all we had. Uh, I didn't. I didn't fail too bad, and, and uh, so I'm. I'm. I'm proud of that. It's. It's a feather in my cowboy hat, if you know what I mean. <laughs> and, uh, no, uh, yeah. Unless you've got something else, if you want to take a shot at the coxes before we uh, before we drop you, you 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 more than uh, certainly can. Otherwise, uh, no. Like like I said, we'd really like to get you on here in a few weeks, and uh, you know, I don't know, few months, some sometime, have an ask ask the biologist segment. Yeah, no, I would welcome that. For for two years, I've been ripped on this program, so to finally be able to come on here and set the record straight, uh, we've it's, done nothing was, but spoken highly of you and your knowledge. <laughs> your knowledge. We've we've oh. always said good things about you. The only thing that we say is that you are from Minneapolis, and I mean, let's be honest. How long does it take you to get to Target Field from the front doorstep of your house? Ooh. I'd say, I'd say that's a solid hour. Hour. That means you're from around Minneapolis. <laughs> <laughs> All 
Oh, that's all right. I I love the the little the little podcast that could from Pig Love Iowa. You gotta love it. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> all right. Well, I'm looking forward to get back in the, back together with you guys. I know we've we we get together at Hooked on Hard Water. We'll do another couple trips in between. And uh, yeah, Ask a Biologist sounds like fun. And Matt'll Matt'll carry the water. We're gonna have to throw some some harder. Uh, maybe the listeners can get in and send some harder yeah. uh, lake name questions in. Send them to me, not to the to the podcast page because yep. Scott will be cheating then. Stump the Sturman. There we go. Stump the Sturman. <laughs> so, all right, Scott, uh, we appreciate it. Uh, you know, hopefully we can get uh, fishing with you before, but otherwise I'll uh, see you at June uh, for that Boundary Waters trip. Sounds good. All right. See you, pal. Bye-bye. And there goes Scott Mockentoon uh, of the Minnesota DNR and uh, just an all-around dirtbag. Yeah. All around dirt bag. Maybe one of the tallest dirt bags there is out there. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we've said it before. I mean, you know, he's he's not a very good talker. I mean, he ain't much to look at. He's not a very good fisherman. But if you need something put on the top shelf, he's your guy. Dude can change a light bulb like nobody else. Yeah, yeah. Maybe two at the same time <laughs> if you got a six-foot spread in between them. No. No, we appreciate him uh, stopping in. Like I said, we've wanted we've wanted that interview for, for a long time, and uh, – um, hopefully, hopefully we can get him on here again, you know, maybe, maybe one of those guys that we just have on, you know, every, uh, 12 to 15 episodes, uh, just, uh, kind of explore what's going on, uh, up there, but it's always nice to have him for our fish identification. There's a lot of times where <laughs> we're like, Hey, text yeah, what, him at night. Like, that? what is this? Or, and, you know. and I've done it. I've done it a lot of times where, you know, a buddy of mine catches a fish and they ask me, you know, Hey, what is this? And I'm like, golly, I have no clue you know but we know looks like some sort of uh send him up a picture and and i mean he can i i truly believe scott can tell you like i i, I one time sent him a picture of a sunfish at my buddy's pond and he knew of of the parents you know like which, it, it was yeah. like a green sunfish mixed with a pumpkin seed sunfish or something like that and he knew which one was the was the male and, and female of the mix and i mean hey Kudos to him. That's right. Kudos to him. I, I know, you know, like, I don't know. I, I don't know what I know. <laughs> I, I was going to say, like, I know. Uh, you know. You know? So, something. I, I was trying to come up with something about food that I knew. And, you know, I know if it's a Jack's pizza or a Tombstone pizza. You, you know what type of wood that they used on the smoker by just, you know, yeah. one mm. little taste. A mm. blind That's taste mesquite after. mixed with a little apple. That's right. You had a little apple left in that Traeger grill. <laughs> Yeah, see that. I mean, everyone's got their area of expertise. That's right. And that's mine. I mean, hey, is what it is. So, well, uh, I guess uh, I don't really have anything else to uh, do. I'm, I'm going to say this again. If you got to this part and you still have not emailed MidwestAngler1 at gmail.com, you're it. missing out. Do so it. do it. And also, if you're on into fantasy fishing and you haven't set your lineups yet, do, do it. it if this is do before it. do it thursday do it if you're listening before thursday do it do it <laughs> so get out there and do that stuff yep so uh good news no. story good news story um mine is i'm gonna say former guest troy Didi, friend of the show finished 10th down at the red river in louisiana in a tournament this past weekend um it was the tbf federation national championship so congratulations to Troy. Absolutely. Past awesome. guest. Uh, awesome dude. Awesome uh, 
showing down there. Uh, the northern guys actually did quite well. Yeah, so I was, was going to say. I I looked at it like after one of the one of the first days, and uh, there was another guy I think like from maybe Minnesota or Wisconsin that was up there. Yep. Yeah, so. Minnesota was in eighth. Ron Mayer. Okay. So yeah, Troy did a awesome shit, awesome job down there, Troy. Heck yeah, good job, uh, Midwestern anglers. So uh, no, mine is going to be uh, Saturday morning. I went down to the river to uh, cast in a in a spot kind of known for some walleyes, and uh, a young kid was down there when I got down there. Um, we've talked about him before. It's it's actually Matt's cousin, but I mean this kid can fish, and uh, so me and him actually sat and had uh, you know pretty pretty cool conversation you know about uh the fish that he's caught you know down in that spot down you know in our river whatever blah 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 and uh no we had a we had a really good time uh then that evening uh my neighbor across the road son and uh, one of his buddies had gotten back uh, they had gone to a river uh like 20 minutes away and actually fished and you know i just i'm i'm kind of pumped up that uh some some young dudes i think the the guys across the road are eighth graders and i think right. uh the other one's a sixth, sixth grader, grader. Yeah, you know I the actually, fact that right yeah no keep going no just the fact that you know at a young age you know this time of the year you know i mean they're not fair weather fishermen i mean these dudes are ready to catch them and uh i'm just uh you know i'm pumped up that uh you know it's it's uh we have we have a group of sixth graders here at school that are get are really into fishing i mean my cousin is really into it but I also, in, after class the other day, I had one of them come up to me and ask me, like, you know, I've been down at the river quite a bit because they live out in the country and have a river by his place, and a bunch of those guys sit out there and fish. And he's like, I, I haven't caught anything yet, you know, like, what what should I – he was asking questions on, like, what yep. he should use and stuff like that. So, that yeah, was pretty cool. Yeah, he was asking the wrong guy. Well, I know. I just said, <laughs> a hot dog and a treble hook. <laughs> yeah, you can BS anybody. <laughs> That's what this whole show's made up of. So, all right, guys. MidwestAngler1 at gmail.com. Email it. And that's that. Out. See you next week. Later. Bye.